Hello, I'm Piero Vitelli, and welcome to Dancing in the Line of Fire, a series of podcasts exploring presentation delivery. Please do feel free to contribute your thoughts on Twitter using the hashtag Dancing in the Line of Fire, all one word, and I'll be addressing your comments and questions at the end of the series. But for now, it's time for Chapter 5, Mind Games. Before we can present, we actually have to want to in the first place. And, as obvious as it may sound, this is incredibly important. Why? Because in all forms of performance, the audience can not only smell uncertainty, but distinguish it from faltering bravado. As we will discover throughout this series, there are many things essential to a good presentation that are almost impossible to quantify. It's always easier to prove their absence, and so it is with conviction. I am an ardent armchair tennis fan who doesn't play. I'm equipped with a good knowledge of the rules, a basic understanding of how to play, and endless opinions on how those who do could do it better. Because of my particular age, I remember the glorious days of Borg, Naratilova and McEnroe, and closely followed the major tournaments through the eras of Graf, Sampras and the Williams sisters. One match in particular sticks in my mind, but not for the quality of the tennis. It was one of Tim Henman's last ever professional matches before his retirement in 2007, and what made it unforgettable for me were the words he used in the post-match press conference in response to being questioned about his performance. He gave a painful wince, which he so often did, and offered his explanation for his failure to win with the following words. Well, I went out there and waited for my opportunities to come to me, but they didn't. However unwitting a choice of language it may have been, it was a curious one too. At the height of his career, Tim reached number four in the world. He was a graceful player who could play a wide variety of shots superbly well. And he was economic, which I think made him dangerous. Here was a player who was capable of playing five sets of tennis using less energy than many of his opponents. And under the right conditions, he was brilliant. Unfortunately, one of the conditions seemed to be that he wasn't too close to winning an important point, as his habit was to choke at precisely the wrong moment. In 2001, he faced Goran Ivanisevic, the big-serving Croat during the Wimbledon semi-finals. In the end, he lost, and many of those commenting on his failure blamed the rain for interrupting his impressive progress on the Friday. Yet, as it was the very same rain that Ivanisevic capitalised on to recover from being a set-down to win the match, it's hard to draw any other conclusion that the problem was psychological and not meteorological. Opportunities are precisely what have given the likes of Williams, Federer, Nadal and Sharapova their titles, and they must be seized by the scruff of the neck rather than simply waited for. This was brought home to me during my final term at drama school, when I had the option of taking some classes for acting on screen. As my three-year course had primarily focused on stage work, I jumped at the chance to explore the differences between that and film acting and get the experience that was on offer. 
apart from a little grounding and some theory, we were tasked with rehearsing a two-handed scene and performing it on camera. Having long dreamt of winning an Oscar, I was enthused and chose a scene from a film called Goodwill Hunting, which had just won the category for Best Film. For a few weeks, I studied the film and the scene I had chosen in particular. I rehearsed with a scene partner, and on the day of filming, we worked well together and our effort was put down on tape. At the end of the recording session, the director called lunch and said we would regroup after an hour to review all the scenes. Aghast at the prospect of watching myself on screen, I said as much to the director, whose reply still echoes in my ears today. Oh, for God's sake, you don't want to watch your own work, but you'll ask that of millions of others? He was quite right, of course. And so to repeat him, my advice is simply this. If you don't want to present, don't. Whether on stage or off, people know when you don't want to be in their company. And sometimes the awkwardness can be tangible. I can still recall one morning many years ago when I asked my unusually subdued girlfriend at the time what was wrong. Despite her protests that she was fine, I knew she wasn't. And the simple truth as I see it is that when someone says, it's not you, it's me, they usually mean the opposite. An audience knows when a presenter doesn't want to be there. And if your head and your heart are in different places, then you're nowhere. You may now be muttering, well, that's all well and good for you to say, but I have no choice, I have to present. If so, you have clearly articulated the one problem that I can't help you with. And whilst I'm fully aware that many people have to present, perhaps against their wishes as part of their job, I do feel your pain, but I'm not sure that I can really help, as these podcasts are created for people who want to present and want to do it better. Pablo Picasso is reported to have said, When you come right down to it, all you have is yourself. All the rest is nothing. A dramatic quote, perhaps, but rather appropriate, as all I can do is suggest a number of coaching techniques that might help you consider presenting in a different light, or give you instructions for a thorough physical preparation that would anaesthetize or lessen some of the pain. But neither these nor any other technique or process can convert apathy into desire. That's a coin that only you can toss in the air. It is a fact that even with access to the best tennis coaches in the world at the time, Tim Henman was never able to win a Grand Slam tournament. Not because he wasn't capable of it, but possibly because he couldn't reconcile himself to the enormous expectations of his audience. But at least Tim wanted to win, so anyone planning on giving a presentation without wanting to would be well advised to reflect on what John Pierce, the CEO of Lightfleet, apparently once said. You can't lead a cavalry charge if you think you look silly on a horse. But even if we master our fears tomorrow, there remains the problem of presenting today. And although a good plan today is clearly better than a great plan tomorrow, an ineffective one tends not to improve with age. When facing a direct threat, 
people often engage in some form of bargaining, where in exchange for survival we sacrifice something less important, like status or worldly goods. At drama school, I had a supporting part in a play called Anatole, which told the story of a string of relationships between a playboy and his conquests in late 19th century Vienna. A friend and classmate who played the lead struggled with the weight of expectation throughout the production, and for six weeks I watched from one foot away as a very real and private drama unfolded. The climax arrived during our second public performance, when props malfunctioned, hands shook uncontrollably, and what the audience heard bore little relation to what Arthur Schnitzler had written. The action literally ground to a halt, halfway through the second act out of seven, and I realised that we were in uncharted waters. I began to offer a variety of improvised prompts to get us to the end of the scene, and at one point looked deep into his eyes. For the first time in my life, I saw a moment of pure, undiluted fear, and instantly knew I had become Thelma to his Louise. I have no recollection of how we survived that night, but we did, and soon learned to laugh about it. Sometime later, he confided in me that in that moment he would have given anything not to be there, and had even considered pretending to faint. I'm fairly sure Arthur Schnitzler would have been amused by that, and it's almost certainly something which the Hollywood director Michael Bay experienced when his teleprompter malfunctioned during a presentation in front of hundreds and he felt compelled to leave the stage. This is what can happen to those of us who struggle to resolve our feelings about what is expected of us. Often, we will intuitively hide behind stage furniture, hoping that any public humiliation or rejection will somehow be less complete if masked by a physical barrier. If we realise that this practice serves only to draw attention to that which we would hide, we try a more subtle approach by switching off our minds and leaving our bodies to fend for themselves. Absenting ourselves in front of an audience is made possible by the fact that our body is an extraordinary instrument capable of surviving perfectly well without the mind, but whilst safely elsewhere, we fail to notice that an autopilot struggles to navigate nuance and ambiguity, leaving our delivery robotic. Another approach is to interrupt the connection between presenter and audience. Either we form a strong bond with our visual aids and exclude everything else, or we unleash an avalanche of data such that they forget about us in their efforts to process as much as they can, either option rapidly consuming the audience's energy and patience. For those presenters who manage to maintain eye contact, we still have one last crude way of hiding, which is to speed through a presentation in the same manner with which we would run over a length of searing hot coals. I'm not suggesting that it is impossible to construct a presentation from anything but fantastically interesting data, but what makes it so is the meaning a presenter helps the audience derive from it. I have seen some very effective presentations about health and safety procedures and sales targets through the use of imagination, creativity and hard work. It is the presenter's job not just to share data, 
but to bring it to life. And for an audience to find a topic interesting, they must enjoy a degree of intellectual, experiential, or emotional intimacy with it. Brené Brown, the American scholar and author, gives a highly engaging TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability, in which she asserts that humans cannot selectively numb emotions. I wholeheartedly agree with her and suggest that this might explain why those of us who attempt to survive a presentation by disconnecting our minds or hearts from fear, humiliation and rejection are then completely unable to access the emotions of excitement, thrill and joy. Having stripped ourselves of the ability to feel anything, the same sadly becomes true for our audience. One of the most effective examples of someone who clearly wants to present is the late Professor Hans Rosling. In his now almost legendary presentation called The Joy of Statistics, he uses a data set of 120,000 numbers to create a four-minute animated graph. By interacting with it, he leads his audience through a compelling story of 200 countries told over 200 years. As he says during its introduction, having the data is not enough. I have to show it in ways people both enjoy and understand. In all the presentations he gave, he clearly thrilled in not so much his ability, but his desire to communicate complex ideas simply, effectively and unambiguously. Thank you for your company, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget that you can shape the final episode by posting questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag DancingInTheLineOfFire, all one word. And if you want to find out more about the work I do, then please do visit island41.com. And I look forward to seeing you next time.